0: oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Alan Jacobs. In his new book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, this gifted scholar draws us into close and sympathetic engagements with texts from across the ages, including the work of Anita Dessay, Heinrich Ibsen, Jean Rye, Simone Weil, Edith Wharton, Amitav Ghosh, Claude Devi strauss Italio Calvino, and many, many more. By hearing the voices of the past, Jacobs argued, we can expand our consciousness, our sympathies, and our wisdom far beyond what our present moment can offer. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Alan Jacobs. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, I should say. Yeah, it's great to be back. So the last time we talked, you wrote a book called How to Think, uh, a guide for um, turbulent times. This book doesn't feel unrelated. Uh, your new book is Breaking Bread with the Dead, a reader's guide to a more tranquil mind. I'm interested, what is it that draws you to tranquility as a kind of goal in in contemporary life? What, what do you think the value is there? I'll- it's,
1: it's so hard to get, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like gold, right? Scarcity, uh, you know, increases the value. Um, it's certainly, you know, so you're absolutely right that the two books are related to one another. And when I, when I wrote how to think, I was, I was really focusing on what people might do to, uh, connect with one another, and to understand their own uh, temperamental and circumstantial inclinations and and to try to get people to fight back against that a little bit. And what what I think has happened since then is that, you know, just the positive feedback loops, and I don't mean positive in the sense of good, I mean in the kind of technical sense of positive feedback, right? That when you get positive feedback, Coming through your speaker, right? It starts squealing like crazy because you know it's over. You're you're overdriving the the speaker, and that kind of positive feedback loop of people being more and more in their uh, in their echo chambers, you know, and they they build their own echo chambers, and then and then they live in them, and and. I, I, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get anybody to do anything about their thinking patterns and their thinking habits unless I could get them to kind of step back a little bit and just chill a bit, get a little perspective, and and become just you know lower your blood pressure, lower your heart rate, and and uh, that's the kind of tranquility that I personally value very greatly because it's not easy for me to get and that I think a lot of other people would benefit from too.
0: I'm curious. So you teach undergrads. Yep. Where do you see, how do you see the lack of tranquility manifesting itself in your students? I mean, what do you see? What are the prime symptoms that as an observer you take note of?
1: I mean, there's, you know, I, I, I think the, the answer that a lot of people would give is you know, social media. But I think for my undergrads, it's not primarily social media. I think it's just the sheer chaotic uncertainty and fragility of our economic world. And, you know, costs of higher education have gone up enormously in the last 25 years, in part because, you know, colleges and universities try to do so much more, you know, that they want to have they want to have swimming pools and they want to have climbing walls and they want to have nicer dorms than, you know, than people of my generation lived in. There's a variety of reasons for it, but the costs have gone up astronomically. And and so the students get a lot of pressure either implicit or explicit from their parents that like, Hey, you need to, you need to make sure that, you know, you get good grades, you, that you get top grades, that you get into grad school or law school or med school so that, you know, we'll get, we'll get, a will get, we'll get a return on our investment, you know, and that's where I see my students' failing in to achieve tranquility they just feel that they're under so much pressure they feel like they can't afford to take chances in education they can't they have to dot all of the i's and cross all of the t's and do everything that they possibly can to make sure that their parents do get that return on investment and it's harder and harder to predict that that's going to happen given the the economic conditions that we have now. So my, my heart goes out to these these young people because they it's so hard for them to see a way clear to a better life. Um and that I think is where they are missing tranquility and you know my book is probably not going to help them get that <laughs> but um it it might help them just Ease off the pressure on themselves just a little bit, at least I hope so.
0: One of the things that struck me in your book, you you, you referenced this Indian novelist who I'd never heard of, mm. Amitav Ghosh, mm-hmm. who published this nonfiction book, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable. And what struck me um about this was that he basically he tells this journalist, Wes Stevenson, this realization that um Nothing in late twentieth literature was helpful at all for thinking about right. the most. I mean, arguably, you know, the the biggest issue we face, right? Like, right. If, the, if there's no planet, there's no other issues. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you have to have a planet to have. Other issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what's remarkable, right? That 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 this looming reality that we that is on the horizon mm-hmm. urgently for all of us that this author could find nothing in contemporary literature that helped him engage it
1: right right because all of all of the literature of the last 200 years or so is just assumes increasing human control of their environment right and the idea that our environment may be changing in ways that we have no control over anymore. Maybe at one point we did, but we don't have any control over it anymore, is so foreign to our belief that we can just kind of, you know, innovate our way out of whatever difficulty arises. And so this sense of what do you do when you live in a world that you can't control at all? Uh, You know, Amitav Ghosh says, Uh, I'm going to look at my distant ancestors for that, you know, because we go back several hundred years or a thousand years or 2000 years, and we find people who certainly knew what it was like to live in a world that they didn't have an environment they had no control over. And so they're going to have to be our sources of wisdom because our more recent ancestors and then our current kind of technocrats are people who have no idea how to think that way. Um, so we're going to have to get it from somebody else.
0: I mean that would have been the normative experience for basically all of humanity in pre modernity yeah. right not yeah. not just living with the fact that you don't have you can not you control very little right
1: right that absolutely anything uh can can happen and you know i, I uh, about 25 years ago um i think it was my my wife was working for world relief and she was uh, making a trip to Central America to see some things that the, some of the projects that world relief was doing there. Yeah. I, in fact, I remember exactly when this was, it was 1991 and 1992. And the reason I rem- you'll, you'll, you'll know why I remember in just a second. Um, she, she met this farmer there who had, uh, Completely changed thanks to some help from World Relief. He had completely changed his methods and techniques of farming, and he was getting much higher yield on his crops, and everything was going great. He said, "But now, he said, I've lost everything. I've gone back to where I was before because the uh, uh, my my costs have risen so much that it's eaten up all of the additional profit that I've that I was making." And Terry asked him, "What? What is it? What you know? What? What's the cause of it?" She said, "He says primarily gasoline." He says, "I have to drive a truck to the nearest city so I can sell my crops." And he said, "I that, that the cost of gasoline has just gone completely crazy," and uh, and the reason for that was the Iraq War, <laughs> or the the Persian Gulf War, and um, and you know that had sent worldwide oil prices skyrocketing here's this guy he's got nothing to do with iraq he doesn't even you know he probably is not even sure where iraq is he's just kind of living in his little world and yet global circumstances are changing the way that he lives and radically and disrupting all the good things that had come into his life and there's no nothing anybody can do to control that so that kind of uncertainty, the, the, you know, as as our culture, as human culture becomes more global, we're not getting more control. We're getting less control. We're not getting more predictability. We're getting more chaos. Um, and so we're facing that, you know, in a 100 we've we've just in, we've been talking like less than 10 minutes and we've already mentioned several ways in which people inevitably feel less secure less stable that their lives are less predictable
0: than they would have been for an earlier generation like mine a lot of the kind of pop wisdom right in the sort of Mm self-help kind of genre is like live in the now right be present centered you have this great phrase temporal bandwidth and you actually think living in the now is one of the things that robs us of tranquility and perspective right it, it it's actually even though people try to peddle it like that's the way to tranquility you kind of argue that it's not the way to tranquility right yeah. the, the getting decentered from the the now and and the tyranny of the present is the way to some healing in this regard
1: yeah because for most of us in, in the developed world and in much of the rest of the world, our now is a very connected moment and we're getting things just pouring in. Um, you know, through the, our, the fire hose. Well, one time uh, recently, I was I was writing something about the fire hose of information and I accidentally typed a D at the beginning of that word. So it was a dire hose. And I think that's actually a pretty good word. <laughs> we get the, this dire hose of information. And um, and, and and there is uh, the problem with that. Well, there's a lot of problems with that one is that things come to faster than we can deal with them but another problem with it I, and this was a really great um, there's a blog post recently by a friend of mine named Robin Sloan who is a novelist and uh, he's actually now making a video game and as he's been working on this video game he uh, he he's interested as he sort of has to be in um, you know what's gonna be on the screen Um And he started talking about, he's got this blog post where he talks about different ways of projecting images. So you can have like the perspectival projection. So like you put a, uh, you know, geometric shapes, you know, cubes and and spheres, and, and you have them moving in relation to one another. And if you have a perspectival projection, you can easily tell which ones are closer and which ones are farther away, right? And, but if you use what he, what's called orthographic projection, then you can't. They all look the same. You just see them moving and they look exactly the same. And Robin, Robin said, I think this is such a great way to think about it. He said social media uh, is an orthographic camera like nothing you, you you know everything looks the same size right it might be a world transforming thing or it might be a totally insignificant thing but people are like equally angry and equally upset right everything kind of gets that same that that same response from us and and we've you know we've it's it's very difficult to know how to manage because you know the thing that's utterly trivial might get you know, retweeted or reposted ten thousand times, and the more important thing might get reposted two or three times, and and so you you lose your perspective, and 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 you start getting what starts happening to you is uh, a bit like what uh, Saint Paul uh, is talking about when he talks about people who were blown about by every wind of doctrine. right? You don't have any stability. Um, and, and that's where that phrase that I picked up from Thomas Pynchon comes in. Personal density is proportionate to temporal bandwidth. If you have the temporal bandwidth, you, that is to say you have a bigger now, you can, you can think back into the future and you can think forward, uh, think back into the past and think forward into the future. If you're able to do that, then you get some perspective on your issues of the moment and then when you get that perspective it gives you more density as a person and when you have that density then you're not as vulnerable to all those winds you can be a little more stable and when you can be more stable you can be more tranquil so that's how that's how looking into the past I mean, it would as as C.S. Lewis says in an essay of his, he said, books from the future would be just as helpful to us as books from the past, but unfortunately we can't get those. (laughs) So we have to, you know, but the works from the past are things that give us that perspective and ground us, give us a little more density, and that means density equals stability equals tranquility.
0: That's the idea. It's interesting the way you describe that, because I think about things we know about like post-traumatic stress disorder, Right. And so much about what trauma does is it, it, it takes bandwidth away. Right. In the sense of mm. you have a traumatic experience yeah, and the past becomes the present. Like you can't, it, it, and so it robs you of your ability to, to, to look back and look forward. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it yep. seems like the sort of tyranny of the now is like traumatizing everyone.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It puts us in a permanent condition of, of trauma. It's destabilizing, It's, you know, I mean, it was just so, you know, we're recording this just a a few days after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, and I heard about that and I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. One more, one more thing that is going to be incredibly destabilizing and is going to intensify all the, the 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 anger and frustration that's already out there. But see, that's how it is. Right. Every new thing has that that potential. And it's just it's really hard to to get out of that. You have to have a lot of you have to have a lot of strategies that help you to deny yourself some of the things that you're accustomed to. But as we anybody who's ever had children knows that you can't just tell them, no, you have to give them an alternative. You have to be able to say, try this instead and, um, and that's what this book of mine is basically an attempt to do. It's a, it's an attempt to say, try this instead. Um, not to tell you to do nothing, but to tell you to try something else.
0: One of the things, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about so much of the tyranny of the pr- the presentism and like, li- like it, in this just inescapable, like as you're describing, we're in, you know, it, we're just reactive to social media, to this, to this media influence, to this. And I I look at like, I mean, so many people, um uh, castigate Donald Trump, but I wonder is Trump the illness or the symptom, right? Because I mean, it seems that like Trump's political success is in mirroring this, right? Like he, like, it's not that he's this great visionary leader or something. He's someone that's good at mirroring cultural influences, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, his use of media and social media seems to be so dialed into the problem. Oh man, you're addressing in this book, right? Yeah, and that's how he's successful. I mean, it's it's weird. He he speaks the lingua franca, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he knows he knows how this
1: works, and um, you know, I, I don't think of Donald Trump as an intelligent man in a in an academic sense of the word, but he's an incredibly shrewd man. And one of the things that he knows is that all of the people in the media who hate him more than they hate the devil himself, he, he owns their mind space. He absolutely owns their mind space that if they start talking about something else, he can make them talk about him. He can, He can. He's able to pull that back. And I think it's It's absolutely essential there's no way he could have done what he has done to own the the mind space of so many people if it weren't for Twitter, you know, because it's 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 the perfect medium for him because people always talk about how he's getting himself in trouble on Twitter. No, he's not. He's always making himself the center of attention on Twitter. Right. And he can just get up in the morning and, and shoot off a barrage of tweets. And he owns that space and he owns the media attention for the rest of the day and everything else disappears. And it, it's just like, you know, <laughs> I I feel like that the, the, the number one qualification, For being a journalist these days ought to be that you don't have a Twitter account and you can't read what Donald, I mean, you'd see it anyway. But if there was some way to hide from yourself what he tweets, uh, you know, I think you would have. More perspective and a more legitimate understanding of what's actually going on in the world, but that's not how it works. You know, I talk to my journalist friends and I say, "You got, you got to get off Twitter, man. This thing is killing you." You know, and they say, oh, "I have to be on it. I have to be on it." But they have to be on it because that's where all the other journalists are. And I, you know, on the one hand, I get that. On the other hand, I want to say, "You guys stop talking to each other." You know, <laughs> and 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 go somewhere else and <laughs> talk to other people who aren't on social media all the time.
0: One of the things in the book that you raise, I find so helpful. You talk about, yeah, it's interesting because we're in in the age of cancel culture, right? Where it it seems like we have no ability sometimes to be sympathetic to people's historical situations and, and, and we sort of judge them by idiosyncratic, anachronistic standards. And you sort of say when we're engaging old books our purpose isn't to bring them into our world to interrogate them. The, the, the way the experience is transformative is if you go into their world as right. a guest right. and poke around, right? And, and, and kind of and observe and see what you can learn, as opposed to trying to ram them into our world, right? Like you you need to go as sort of a as a, 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 a guest in right. the ancient world. Right, right. You go as a guest. But
1: you also, even though you're a guest and you should behave in the way that guests behave, you should also um, remember that you have control over this. You can get up and leave anytime that you want to. And and that's why I feel like reading old books is is really good practice. It's kind of like a trial run for dealing with your neighbors who don't. Think the way that you do, right? Somebody that, or some, or your coworkers, or somebody that you have to deal with that you can't really get away from that's making your life difficult or it, it is frustrating you in some way. If you, if you, if you read an old book, you get this kind of low stakes, low investment practice. In dealing with otherness, in dealing with people who don't see the world the way that you do. And if they start freaking you out, which they will sometimes, right, then first of all, I think you should just own that. I don't think you should pretend that that's not your response, and I don't think you should become a moral relativist. But I think what you, you, you know, maybe at that point, you kind of close the book for a little while, you know, and you think about it, you reflect on it, and then you come back to it. And in that way, you're kind of building up um, a, a sort of a reservoir of, of charity and generosity. And if you do this enough, it just might make it a little easier for you to deal with that obnoxious coworker or obnoxious relative. Um, but you got to kind of work your way up to it. You know, you need a little, it's like training for a marathon or something.
0: And isn't there some value to, to learn how to, how to make judgments in our own present time, aware that we are so fraught with, I mean, you you mentioned, there's this great quote in the book where you're you're talking about, um, Julian Beghini and you say that Beghini's chief argument is that none of these figures had the good fortune to be confronted with the eloquent proponents of opposing views. And he's talking about people like Kant or Hume or, you know, um, people from previous centuries. They did not have the benefit that we have of being able to read Mary Wollstonecraft and Virginia Woolf and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. And I think doesn't like some of the, the sojourns into the past, could they make us more aware that people are going to look back at us? Yeah. Right. Or we might look back at our own lives in just right. a few, in a few right. short years and think, right. wow, how can I have thought or said or done this? Yeah. Mm hmm.
1: Mm hmm. And by the way, this is one of the things that presentism prevents us from recognizing because like this is so for instance, um, I, this is something I've been saying for some years, like think about, for instance, churches that are changing their views on sexuality. And then they say, you know, we now see that we need to be more inclusive or whatever. And, and the, the, you know, okay. Okay. You know, but let's, let's just stop and ask a question. If you see that now, why didn't you see it 10 years ago? Right. I mean, presumably it was just as true 10 years ago as it is now. Same thing with like trans issues or people discovering, you know, American racism for the first time. Like, why didn't you see this before? If it was, if it was there, why didn't you see it? And, you know, it's something that people don't really want to talk about, but it's incredibly important to kind of, to, to stop and say, okay, Why didn't I see that before? But if you move just from outrage to outrage, then the kind of the the only thing that really matters to you is that I got to get I got I have to get on the right side of this issue that's happening now. So I've got to post about it or tweet about it or say something about it because, you know, I want to make sure that I'm not going to get canceled now. So I'm going to, you know, get out in front of this and make sure that I say the right things. But when you're always trying to do that, right, then there's never really a point at which you can step back and reflect, well, if this is like a big thing for me now, why wasn't it a big thing for me before? And, you know, if you do that, if you think that way, you have to realize how much of your thinking, my thinking, everybody's thinking is just shaped by the background noise, the ambience, you know, the the sort of the ambient beliefs of our time. And we don't think about all of those issues because we can't think about everything. And so we just, for a lot of issues, we just take the views that the people around us take, because that's, you know, it's triage is a word that I use a lot in this book. And, you know, I think understanding that is a really important thing, because one of the things that will do I think is give us maybe a little more charity towards our past selves, but then if we're going to have charity towards our past selves, which I think is appropriate, how about having some charity for people right now who are you know not on the same side that that we're on? Right? It drives me nuts when these people who like change their views about sexuality or about racism or about whatever, and then all of a sudden they are like totally intolerant of people who held the same view, who hold the same views that they held like a year ago.
0: <laughs> it's just crazy. I remember watching Bill Maher like a year or so ago. It was during the democratic primaries and he was doing, I guess his kind of closing remarks, you know, his, it, which he does at the end of his show. And he was saying something about Kamala Harris and, and how she basically had, um, yeah, kind of loosened up her views on um, use of marijuana from when she was a prosecutor, when she was at the Attorney General. And Bill Maher, and, and P- Bill Mar saying, people have asked, how can you support her? How can you encourage her? And Bill is like, because people evolve. People change. And he, it, the whole point of his kind of concluding remarks in a show were that people evolve and change, and that's a good thing. And we shouldn't castigate people because they have a change of mind, right? Or because they have a change. In fact, I mean, I, part of what, like, what I take to be at the heart of of your book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, is actually the further you get in temporal bandwidth, the more you're going to be able to change your mind right. in, in, way, in ways right. that it feels like with presentism that we're so open-minded. But I think mm-hmm. what you're arguing actually is no, actually presentism makes it very difficult to change your mind because right. you're captive. To right. these forces that have this gravitational pull, and 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 that when you increase your temporal bandwidth, you actually have some capacity to say, "Oh, just like many people in history have evolved right. and changed and and, right. and had blind spots." That this is a possibility for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing about it is, is that we think
1: I th- I think when we are living in a completely presentist world, we th- we think we're changing our minds because we change, we may have either a different position on an issue that we once had, or we now have a position on an issue that we didn't have a position on before. But you can do that without actually changing your mind. You can, you can be seeming to be changing your position, but maybe there's actually a consistency there. And the consistency is that you're doing whatever the people around you are doing. And, um, you know, you do that, today you did that a year ago you did that 5 years ago so the, the 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 again the kind of the ambient background shifts but you're always shifting along with it and and so you're not really changing your mind you're 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 pursuing the same habit of mind that you had pursued all along and what what encountering works from the past does is it gets you out of that ambient kind of flow and you're you're now somewhere else. As you said, you're you're a visitor somewhere else. Right. And you have to learn the customs of the country and you try to adapt to those. And then sometimes what you're going to say is, you know, I, I do need to change in this direction that other people have been encouraging me to change. But sometimes it can actually be just the opposite. Sometimes you say, you know, I, I, I've lost touch with what I once believed and what I once counted on, and maybe I need to get back in touch with that. You know, maybe maybe the only way to go forward for me personally is for me to go back to some, in some sense, to what I believed before. The, the, the Expanding your temporal bandwidth kind of gives you the freedom to do that, right? It gives you the freedom to, to uh, change your mind in more than one direction. <laughs> um not always moving with whatever the zeitgeist is doing sometimes moving against it right it is that's why i love so much chesterton's idea about um what he calls the democracy of the dead right that um that that we 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 have a democratic order but the democratic order includes people who lived before us and people who will live after us as well that's i think the key to being able to genuinely change your mind and not just go with that ambient flow.
0: Yeah, and doesn't Chesterton say something like tradition? is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living.
1: Right. I, and it, I, I don't think it's Chesterton who says that. I think the person who first said that was Yaroslav Pelikan, I think, the theologian, I think. But it's a very Chestertonian point to make. Right?
0: Yeah, because I've, I've always associated with Chesterton for some reason, but I think it, it strikes me that your assessment of presentism mm-hmm. is kind of what that quote identifies as traditionalism, right? Mm-hmm. It's this dead yeah. faith of the living. Mm-hmm. It's this kind of faith that doesn't can it, that, that struggles to have actual fluidity and dynamism and openness. Right. That it's it's right. actually it, it's funny because it masquerades as the opposite, right? It yeah, masquerades yeah. as the most open, the most, and yet your argument is that it's actually pretty stagnant when you get to the root, right? Of it. Right. And that's why I,
1: I really like the phrase um, Paul Virilio is a French um, kind of Marxist theorist, but he's got this great concept of, of what he calls um, the frenetic standstill, being at a frenetic standstill. Like you're incredibly agitated and you're incredibly, you know, your, your mind is just zipping around and you're tense and you're on edge. And yet you feel you're not really going anywhere. You feel like you're just, you know, it's like, it's like trying to, to, you know, swim in one of those, one of those pools, you know, that, that you, 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 where you can have a pool that's only, I, I, what are these things called? You know, the pool only like six feet long, but you just get in it and swim like crazy to stay in place.
0: You it's know? like a treadmill.
1: Yeah. Like a treadmill. And it's a, it's, you know, that's a frenetic standstill, right? You're, you're, you're completely agitated and stressed and and just kind of bugged out all the time but you also have a sense that you're not actually going anywhere that that life is just kind of the same old thing you know and and Virilio says that this is a really common experience in our world and i i think if we're honest we will admit that it is
0: you say make an autobiographical statement in the book and you talk about how you grew up in birmingham alabama Mm-hmm. that you're thankful for social mobility and that your your dad spent a lot of your childhood in prison um that you weren't on the upwardly mobile kind of track and yet the fluidity in society did give you some chances but then you make this statement that there's a trade-off that yeah. that that you have thinner family connections
1: mm-hmm.
0: and f- and you make a, a a statement about the the sort of lack of deep friendships that you have like lifelong friendships yeah. I'm wondering are are do do old authors play a surrogate role for you mm-hmm. as friends and and what is it like because so much of your whole metaphor here is breaking bread right like mm-hmm. table fellowship mm-hmm. with people that you actually can't eat with right and, and I'm just wondering is there a loneliness in your existence um without these deep kind of lifelong friendships?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I do have, I do have, I don't have lifelong friendships. My wife does. She, she, or close to it, you know, like people that she met in sixth grade and things like that. And I don't have any meaningful connection with people from then, but I I, I have these really important, super valuable and, and sweet friendships. But there are, it's just says something about the world that we were in. These were all friendships that were formed when we all lived in Wheaton, Illinois. Right. And I'm thinking about those really, really dear friends. Right. And there's a couple of them who still live in Wheaton, Illinois, but I live in Texas. I know one of
0: them, Matt Milner. Yeah. Matt Milner, a guy who is a deep, is a good friend of mine. Uh, What
1: a, what a prince of a guy. Right. You know, and I don't get to hang out with Matt anymore. Right. Because I'm, you know, We email or things like that. But, um, he came to visit Baylor a couple of times, but so I'm in Texas. I have friends, uh, you know, really, really close friends who are now in Michigan, South Carolina, West Virginia, uh, Philadelphia, right? They're, they're, they're all over the place and those are hard to sustain, right? I mean, we're still friends and we still love each other. And, but finding the opportunity to get together on a regular basis, that's just, it's just almost impossible, right? We're already starting to think about, you know, let's all move and live in the same area when we retire, you know, or so. But, you know, we don't even know whether we're going to get there. So it's, it is – the friendships are dear, but they don't they, – they, they can't sustain me day to day like they did when people – when we were all living in, you know, in the the same town and could get together for a drink or dinner or whatever at any time. So, yeah, I think it's really true that the, the writers who have been most important to me really are friends and they are people that I can go back to anytime I want. Right. And when I feel the need to, to reconnect, it's always interesting that I have this, I, I think, uh, I talk about this a lot in my book on the pleasures of reading that uh, our, our, the, the way that our culture emphasizes novelty, it's, it's, people often don't reread books, or if they do reread them, they feel guilty about it. But rereading is one of the great joys of the reading life, you know, being able to go back and revisit a book that you really love. And I've kind of got developed a sense over the years of when it's the right time to do it, because you don't want to do it too much or the book kind of loses some of its appeal for you. But you know, I, 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 I've I become attuned to that voice in my head that tells me it's time to go back and do this again. It's time. And one of the things I can do as a teacher is I can often assign those books and make other people read them and force them to sit in a room and talk with me about them. You know, I can get a captive audience for the books that I most love. That's a fun, that's a fun thing to do. But yeah, I do think that, that you're, you, I hadn't thought of this before, uh, Scott, but I think you're exactly right that, that, that they are kind of, s- surrogate, these books that I love the most are kind of surrogate friends.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like I've done it. I don't know. A couple hundred interviews probably on this podcast. I think, yeah, I think. And and then with another podcast I used to do for a group called Mockingbird, I've probably done a hundred or so there. It, It, it's not very often. I mean that a book becomes accidentally timely but I've had several interviews where like, just the way history arced out, an author kind of had an accidentally timely moment. And I felt this way about reading Breaking Bread with the Dead because it came out in COVID-19. And it seems like COVID-19 for the United States is an MRI mm-hmm. for the dysfunctionality of our society, right? Like, we're the most advanced nation on the planet. In many ways, like wealth-wise, scientific discovery, and we can't contain a virus that's not all that hard to contain, right? Like, I mean, it's not like the it's not rocket science how we would, but just our inability, right, to uh, have a common shared humanity, too. And and this is not a new thing. Pandemics are things that are earlier generations lived with with regularity, with less sophistication. I mean, I I wonder as you look at at the the pandemic i mean w- w- what wisdom do you see from the past that would help us navigate a time where we just hit 200,000 deaths i mean this is a very kind of tragic moment and i wonder what resources there are to get out of the presentism that seems to be killing us quite literally right, right now right right
1: i think so l- l- let me say two things one is so there are, there are lots of different ways in which you can commend and celebrate knowing the past. Um, but my book is really f- focused as much as I can focus it on the kind of, you know, I, I mean, I, I only half jokingly call it a self-help book, you know, and I, I think, um, uh, that, that kind of personal acquisition of perspective and tranquility. Those are the that's the key thing in this book. That's the thing that I that I really focus on. And I think that, you know, I I I talked earlier about the dire hose, but you know, there's this other word that has um, been come about lately people going on social media and doom scrolling, right? You're sort of scrolling through one kind of doom after another. And I, I think that that that's just a, a first step is you, you, you can't make you can't make rational and, and maybe more to the point, compassionate decisions. About what you're going to do and what you're not going to do when you're in the doom scrolling dire hose mode, right? There's always something to agitate you. There's always something to make you upset. There's always something that will, you know, kind of get to your amygdala and and your lizard brain, you know, is responding in that way. And I think it's just this is this is it, it, it makes people kind of crazy right? We, my, my wife was on a, my, my wife was on a, a, you know, one of those, you know, sort of neighborhood websites, you know, and she ended up having to get off the neighborhood website because people were fighting about masks all the time. And the people who didn't want to wear masks were saying, you know, remember this one person saying over and over again, you know, she would, Terry was telling me about this, that this one woman kept saying, you take care of you and I take care of me. And, and I kept thinking, don't you know how infectious disease works? You know, I mean, this is, you know, that's, that's just, it's just, it's, it's it's so disconnected from reality, you know? And, but she had gotten herself locked in, right? And, and I, I, I was thinking, this is somebody who could really benefit from getting offline, going for a walk, you know, reading an old book, and just, just to kind of try to, to get that perspective. But then the second thing, and this I can just say more briefly, right, is that it's really worth finding out how people have dealt with uh, w- with pandemic disease in the past, right? Just to see, there is an incredibly moving story about, and uh, and you may have come across this. I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was an English village that, in time of plague, 350 years ago or so. Um, that voluntarily isolated itself from all the other surrounding villages. It was just like, you know, we may all die, but we're not going to make anybody else die. And they had a little boundary stone at the edge of the, of the village uh, that uh, people from other villages would come and drop food off for them there. And then they would go away, and then the people from the village would come and, 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 and get the food. But they, they agreed to die, basically, because they couldn't prevent themselves from being sick, but they could at least prevent other people from getting sick. So that's the second thing, is the ways in which understanding how people have dealt graciously and and sometimes heroically with with these kinds of diseases in the past can make it possible for us to imagine a different way of acting than the way that we usually act.
0: It's interesting. I think the whole kind of trump political program right the make america great again kind of almost is de- it, it's kind of dependent on presentism right because once you start thinking about well how do we evaluate greatness right how do we do we want to go back to segregation although we were a world power in another way like i mean this kind of that kind of slogan just requires a kind of um right. fantasy laden presentism right it, it, it sort of precludes a critical engagement with the past that you're kind of inviting us to and breaking bread with a debt.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and I think, and, and, and that tends to generate its inverse. And this is another way in which um, Trump kind of owns the mind space of so many people is that the, extreme, what what I think of is an extremely dark view of human, of of United States history that we get in the New York Times 1619 project. Again, I I think it's more correct than the idea that America was once uncomplicatedly great, but I still think it may be a little too dark. And I wonder whether that, that kind of project even would have happened if there hadn't been a president saying make america great again right it kind of generates it's it's you know it's it's trying to pull back the pendulum in the other direction as as far as possible but the more that we the more that we study the past right the more that we see people who were just as messed up as we are and and, and which means that you know what what i say over and over again is Let's treat the figures from the past how we want figures from the future to treat us, right? uh, What do we – we do not want a future in which our behavior – Is you know I talk in the book about negative selection and positive selection, right? And then if you use negative selection, so that's it. You did this wrong. You're out of here. We're not paying attention to you anymore. Well, then none of us are going to make that cut, right? None of us are going to make that cut. What we want from the future is for people to acknowledge what we did wrong, but also to acknowledge what we did right. And if if we are a mixed bag, um, you know, I mean, look, it's it's like Kant, Kant, Emmanuel Kant's great line is so true uh, out of the crooked timber of humanity no straight thing was ever made right and it's the truest thing anything anybody's ever said about human beings right we're all made from this crooked timber of humanity and if i that's why i think that seeing that incredibly mixed bag of the past is something that can help us to be more charitable to people in the present and then maybe if we exhibit a kind of a disposition of charity and generosity, then maybe people are a little more likely to be charitable and generous to us when the time
0: comes. When I when I read your book, I mean, I think there, there's a tendency in a book like this, with a book like this to think that the author is going to be um, kind of nostalgic or overly romantic about the past, but that's not at all the tone I get. And actually, what's interesting is, as I finish the book, you seem like a person that's got a decent amount of hope, like an, an openness to the way the human story can play out. Has has your engagement with the past made you a more hopeful person about the human, how the human story could unfold in the future?
1: Yeah I I do think it has and I've needed that because I don't think that I am by nature hopeful but I feel that I as a Christian I am commanded to be hopeful <laughs> you know that it's it's something that I'm required to to pray for and to and to seek and yeah you know it has to see how many times in the past people who were just really seriously messed up in all kinds of ways, nevertheless ended up producing things of value that we benefit from, that we're blessed by, is that 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 helps me to have, again, a more charitable and generous attitude towards the people of our moment, but also a a hope that in, in God's providence that there will be, um, uh, th- that there will be flower and fruit that will come uh, even in this dark time if we just work to make that happen. This is why I've been joking lately that I'm my, my model is the Gandalf option. You know, the Gandalf where he talks about how it's his role as a steward to find it, every good and beautiful thing and to take care of it. And we can do that, right? Nothing is stopping us from doing that. And uh, I love that idea because there's so many people today, especially conservatives and and Christians, um, conservative Christians too. And and well, no, it's really true along uh, all the way across the, the the political spectrum. I just know so many people where I can tell everything that they hate. I know everything they hate. I know everything they disapprove of. I know everything that they reject, but I can't tell what they're for. I can't tell what they want to build. I can't tell what their vision for the future is. And so at the very, very least, I want to be somebody who manifests that degree of hope so that people will will see that that's possible (laughs) and maybe think about what they hope for also.
0: Well, I'll tell you that um, Breaking Bread with the Dead is a great contribution to that kind of movement for hope. And I really enjoyed reading it. So thanks for writing it. And thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it.
1: This has been great, Scott. I really appreciate it.
0: Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.